Good morning, uh, and uh, welcome to this Institute for Government and PA Consulting uh, event. Uh, you've won first prize in, uh, uh, in uh, conference life, managing to get here for just after eight o'clock on the uh, um, Tuesday morning. So, uh, so uh, thank you for coming. Really uh, appreciate it, and um, hope you enjoy this this discussion on the impact of technological change on uh, public services. My name is uh, Alex Thomas. I'm a program director at the uh, IFG, uh, and that I worked in the public sector and the civil service um, uh, for my uh, career. Um, we're really pleased to uh, uh, be partnering with uh, PA Consulting, Councillor uh, Lane, being on the panel uh, as well for the uh, for the event, and uh, looking forward to looking forward to a good um, discussion. Uh, it, 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 it's uh, stating a sort of a complete truism that uh, COVID has transformed uh, public services uh, in some ways for the better, in many ways uh, for the worse. And so the uh, a good moment now to. Uh, talk reflect on the opportunities that uh, that, uh, that brings uh, and also some of the uh, risks and uh, threats uh, talk about the impact on uh, people people who uh, work in public services and those who uh, use it and may uh, not uh, may, may be more uh, technologically left behind um, so really uh, interesting to hear what fantastic uh, panel have to say um, uh, we will have uh, a few minutes of sort of opening questions uh, I'll then uh, curate a bit of a back and forth and then really keen to get your questions and your uh, thoughts as we go through the hour. Um, introduce the panel. Um, first, uh, 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 Chi Onwara is uh, the Shadow Minister for um, uh, Science, Research and Digital and uh, the MP for Newcastle and Darling Central. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, Chi uh, Elaine White is a partner at uh, PA Consulting uh, and specialises in defence. Um, uh, to my uh, left, Melody Gibbs is the Director of Transform Justice. Uh, and Steve Black is uh, Chief Analyst uh, at Ask My GP. So, perfect panel to talk, mm -hmm. about, uh, talk about these sorts of things. And I'm going to kick off with, with uh, Chi, uh, and it would be great to get your thoughts um, on how government can provide more services uh, using technology in a way that doesn't leave people behind uh, and uh, can uh, maximise the benefits and minimise some of the costs. So, Chi. Great. Thank you very much, Alex, and thanks so much uh, to PA and the Institute for Government for organising this very timely um, and important uh, debate and um, so I'm, um, I'm a chartered engineer by background and um, I spent 20 years working in technology in the public, mainly in the private sector but also in the public sector before entering parliament over a decade ago and um, I would complain, to begin with I would complain uh, that digital issues weren't raised enough in, in parliament uh, because you know it's quite nice as a politician to talk about something you know something about always happen you know and I wanted to I wanted to I wanted to talk about digital really came up now though you know and especially after COVID uh, well not after COVID but because of the pandemic uh, digital is everywhere and the average UK adult for example now spends a quarter of their waking life uh, on the internet um, and for Parliament itself uh, went uh, on went digital uh, <laughs> broke with hundreds of years of tradition and actually went digital uh, last year during the pandemic. And in some ways, that's a really good thing. And I always like to say that I am a tech evangelist and I believe in the positive, transformative power of technology and digital. And yeah, I believe that technology can change lives for the better. And it already has in many ways. As Alex said, you know, families separated by oceans are now a Zoom call away and COVID secure medical consultations could take place during uh, the pandemic. You know, today we are all digital citizens. 
but unfortunately, and I you know, really, um, you know, again, sort of as an engineer, I think this is, this is just basically wrong. Um, many of my constituents, rather than feeling empowered by technology, they feel the opposite. They feel disempowered. They feel undermined. They feel dehumanized. They feel trapped. They feel attacked. And so that's what we need to uh, address um, uh, fundamentally as part of transforming uh, digital, performing uh, public services uh, into digital services. And the UK government was once a world leader um, in e-government. You know, the global digital services was the envy of the world. But, I, but for the last five years, it's lacked uh, direction and leadership. And um, our global reputation has suffered. And that's one of the reasons why last summer we did a long consultation with our members, trade unions, private sector, uh, NGOs, uh, uh, social entrepreneurs, etc. And we released the report, Our Digital Future, which I highly recommend. And um, that kind of, I'm just going to briefly go through the, 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 the sort of the, the main recommendations. And I, I just, you know, that the, the exam result mess of last uh, summer, you know, for example, highlighted both the problems of using algorithms to make decisions to access social goods, as well as the decline of smart use of technology in government. And our report found a confusing, competing, and inconsistent guidance on AI, artificial intelligence and data analytics. There are more ways of sharing data in any one department of government you know, than, you would, than you would believe. And, and there's also um, concerns about, for example, the government ability to implement large-scale technological solutions, such as test and trace. So um, I'll just, you know, we said the first thing we had to do was get the basics right, you know, by making clear um, digital material um, available. The second was to set clear boundaries in the use of sophisticated technologies like algorithms and to make their use subject to democratic debate, um, accountability and public opinion. Thirdly, to introduce new safeguards and oversight regimes and, for example, as for example, set up set out in the report of the committee on, on public sta on standards and public life, which is called artificial intelligence and public standards. Fourth, uh, we need proper funding, training, and resources for the public sector, and that's nationally as well as local government, particularly. So, digital competence is not a luxury anymore; it is a, essential. And a decade of cuts have undermined the digital capabilities of, of our public services. And finally, you know, we're looking at considering a new tech regulator which could ge develop genuine specialism in this area, coordinate the work of sectorial regulators, big, build public trust and iron out inconsistencies across different parts of government. Um, and so uh, <clears throat> I'll stop there. I just want to mention one more thing, though, which is digital inclusion. This government doesn't actually have a target for digital inclusion. It used to have it, it was 90% that it felt it met that and we don't have a target anymore, but we have a lot of digitally excluded. And digital government, you know, without digital inclusion is a return to a well, 18th, 19th century model of rotten burrs and rotten democracy. And we have to get that right. Thanks, Jay. Really uh, interesting and uh, uh, provocative. Uh, I, was, I was interested as well, um, you mentioned government digital service and the sort of the, the leadership of that and how that sort of got off to a, um, a sort of fiery start ten years ago and, um, uh, and sort of 
arguably since decline. Um, <laughs> what, what do you think the role? Yeah, the role was a political leadership, ministerial leadership in that Francis Maud in twenty ten to twenty fifteen was a champion of that in, in in government. How do you think that's kind of played out? Has has the last five years just seen a lack of political leadership? Exactly. I mean, Francis Maud and I disagreed um, almost violently on almost every uh, political subject, but when it came to championing. Um, the role of digital of digital services and the need for digital leadership, you know, uh, you know, he did an excellent job. And unfortunately, um, after that, I think you know, and uh, I think that, that <laughs> other departments within government, if you like, wanted to did not want to be subject to GDS's sort of power and influence anymore. And you know, and that that declined. But now we're in a situation where each department is sort of doing its own thing and we don't have digital leadership anymore. So I do think you need a transformative sort of leader uh, prioritising uh, the opportunities of digital as well as the need for you know, consistent standardisation, accountability and transparency in the way in which digital services are developed. And just sort of absolutely critically that digital services should empower people, not tell people what to do. And they should be co-designed with people, and I, I, you know, I think we've lost that. Cool. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, we may well return to many of those themes. Um, uh, thanks, G. And Steve, I'm going to ask you to play the part of the optimist. Uh, <laughs> efficiency gains, the uh, um, uh, doing more with less, um, uh, and the opportunities for um, for, for service uh, uh, delivery. Um, what, 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 what do you can see as the main opportunity? Okay. So, what I'm going to try and do is, is illustrate some principle about making services better using digital tools by talking about, about successes and failures in the land of the GP. So you'll all be familiar with the fact that last week appeared to be national let's hate the GP week, <laughs> especially if you read the Daily Mail and Telegraph. And a lot of the driving force behind that is people complaining about GPs are all online now and they're not seeing versus face to face. This isn't really true, but it's getting the blame for a lot of things. And what I want to say is that actually we have some very good positive stories where technology used in GPs have made big transformations in the experience of the patient. But we've also seen a lot of stories where it's done the opposite. And I'm going to try and argue the case for the following idea by telling you a little bit about how GPs work. If you understand what problems a service has and you apply technology to fixing those problems, you can make big transformations. If, on the other hand, you have some really cool technology like artificial intelligence or video uh, meetings and you simply throw them at a problem, it's usually a catastrophe and makes things worse. And unfortunately, that seems to dominate in many areas. We've got a cool technology, let's apply it, rather than we have a problem, let's solve it. But I'm going to explain how at least one thing worked really well in GPs and made a big difference. And to do so, I want to explain what a typical GP is like pre-technology, or at least pre-the modern rollout. So you'll probably be familiar with this, because it's true for probably the majority of GPs, or was before the pandemic. To get in touch with your GP, you have to make a phone call probably between nine, 8 and 9 in the morning. You probably have to redial a lot of times because they don't have proper hold systems. If you're lucky, you'll eventually get through and they may offer you a fixed appointment, which might be in a week's time. 
that's not a very satisfactory service, but that was a typical, not universal, but typical GP service in 2017, 2018. One thing that was happening before the pandemic was some people were saying, why do we do a better job on that? And there are at least 20 different companies, of which I represent one, who've got solutions, tech solutions, to get GPs online so that that process gets better. But there's a bunch of different ways those companies have tried to do that. Some of them have done that, let's throw some fancy technology like artificial intelligence at the problem. Some have said, let's throw video at the problem and see if we can run a service entirely on the equivalent of Zoom for GP. And a lot of those haven't worked very well because they're not actually trying to solve the fundamental problem, which is how does a patient explain their problem to a GP and how does a GP plan what response is necessary? Some of the systems, and Ask My GP is one of those, which is I guess why I'm here, tried to tackle the key problems. And we said, well, what we want is a, an easier way for patients to communicate with their GP. So instead of having to make multiple calls to a switchboard and hope to get thrown, why not let them send a message to the GP? So we'll ask people a very simple question, you know, roughly what is your problem today? Um, how would you like the GP to respond? And simply by putting in a good online communication system, we've broken the tyranny of the busy switchboard because you can't block online messages because the switchboard is busy because the internet has effectively internet capacity for messages. But you can build on top of that by doing something which also helps the GP behave more efficiently. If you've got asynchronous messaging going to the GP, you're not wasting the GP's time explaining what your problem is. You've written it all down, and then they can read it very quickly. But if you're doing messaging, why not also ask the patient what sort of response they want? So instead of assuming that we've got one thing we can do as a GP, book an appointment, we can ask the patient, do you want a video call? Do you want a message? Do you want a phone call? Do you want this at this point? So that's very valuable information. And, and rather oddly, almost nobody else asks that question ever when they're interacting with the patient. And this means that GP's responses are often totally inflexible and it's very hard to vary them according to what the patient actually wants. So simply by putting in a very simple messaging system and asking that question, we now have much richer information. And that works. It also works inside the GP practice because instead of having a list of appointments that we have to do, the GP has quite detailed information about those and can sort them in useful ways, can flex the response the GP is going to make to the patient. And the net result of all this is it's enormously, well, it's enormously beneficial to the patient. It's much easier to get through to the GP. It's enormously beneficial manage the flow of work inside their practice much more effectively and they can be much more flexible in responding. Patients have a simple fear industry, a one-minute message. That's what we get. Freeing up time to do this to this point which for people who need 30 minutes instead of 10. So there's a, a number of benefits. Now we know GPs like this. We've got a lot of GPs who tell us that. We know patients like it because we also track patient feedback and the feedback is very positive. Numbers are pretty impressive. We've processed about 12 million requests to GPs over the last three years. And 
seems to be a very effective system. So it is possible to do a good job if you apply tech to the problem that you have, which is it's hard to communicate with TCP, it's hard to manage the workflow. But quite a lot of the other systems, not all of them, through things like artificial intelligence. So they, they want to try and diagnose the patient before the GP sees the result. <laughs> and that has two problems. It's not really solving an existing problem for a start because GPs are very good at rapidly assessing what the patient needs. So the artificial intelligence algorithms don't do a better job than that. And they don't save much time. They especially don't save time for patients because an algorithm needs a large amount of information to make that judgment. And that means the patient has to answer 20 or 30 questions before they get a request through to the GP. And that's a disaster. Patients won't use systems like that. You have to force them to use the system at all. So that sort of thing's a thing. We also have people who said, well, we'll solve it by just using video. So we collected some of the most useful stats on this. Because we offered video very early on, we asked everybody whether they wanted it. Our latest statistic is that fewer than 0.2% of all people want to use video to communicate with the GP. It's a very powerful stat. It's a useless technology, even though some people are entirely video based in the tools they throw at the GPs. So, the bottom line, I think, is first thing with going to apply technology understand what the problem is, and then, if necessary, use very simple technology to fix it. But don't go in with some very fancy stuff that say, well, we'll see if video can solve my problem. We'll see if AI can solve my problem. Because that doesn't work. So I think that's, I think that, that, that's a good enough message, I think. <laughs> the the uh, compelling message in favor of simplicity rather than uh, 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 overcomplicated <laughs> things in terms of that uh, technology. Have you had, I mean, just a quick follow-up, Steve, on that. Um, uh, you obviously talk, you know, Compellingly about the, um, uh, the benefits and how both patients and GPs uh, have welcomed uh, that approach. What sort of uh, have you found people get left behind? Have you found people resistant? The over overwhelming. Certainly, I appreciate the infinite capacity of the uh, internet, but not when my inbox has got hundred emails in it. So, uh, <laughs> what have you had? Sort of you know difficulties managing that that transaction. Uh, there's several. Uh, Yes, people do sometimes resist parts of this, and different people in different ways. Uh, the patients, though, are the ones who are most enthusiastic. We get, um, it's hard to compare this, because NHS England don't publish the numbers from 20 different suppliers to do this sort of stuff. But we collect the numbers, they have very detailed statistics of what our patients are doing. 70% of our patients choose to go online, because that is a better way to get the message through the GP. Nobody else gets close to that, as far as we know. That, that's pretty impressive, 70% of the patients. Also worth saying that the ones who don't choose to go online and phone the practice have a much less busy switchboard and almost always get through. So their service goes up because other people are online. And inside the GP, both the phone calls and the messages are processed in the same way. So the GP still gets all the benefits. And the GPs do resist this to some extent. And it takes a lot of training to get them to do it well. Because they have to change the way they work. GPs are used to looking at a full diary of appointments, very inflexible appointments, need to rethink how they work internally. So they need to do a lot more selection and sorting of the work that's coming in and work with a different, much more flexible workflow, which they often resist. In fact, 
quite a lot of GPs have publicly argued recently that the only way they should be seeing patients is face to face, because that's the only, that's what they're trained to do, and they have resisted the idea of being much more flexible. The problem is that's not what patients want. We've been asking patients since the start in 2018, what do they want from the GP? And a startling statistic pre-pandemic is that only 30% of them wanted face-to-face appointments. Nobody else collects that data because nobody else asks patients what they want. And yet that's critical because both the patient and the GP doing a better job and doing a better response. Really interesting. Thank you. Uh, thank, thanks, Steve. Um, Penelope, I'll um, come to you now. And um, particularly talking on uh, your area of expertise, uh, Justice uh, having one of the uh, roughest uh, times through the, um, through the pandemic uh, huge challenges for the court survey. Um, how have you seen technology sort of play out over the last uh, 18 months, uh, bringing, uh, you know, bringing people along, but also particularly uh, thinking about those who, uh, who are left behind by the justice system? Hi, so um, Transform Justice, which is the, the charity I run, have been actually looking at this issue for the last six years. And I, I think I need to go pre-pandemic because... Um, the government actually five years ago uh, proposed a massive what's called digital court reform program, 1.2 billion. And um, that was in the planning before the pandemic. And uh, I would echo a lot what uh, others have said about technology, because I think one of the huge problems with this digital court reform program is it started from the wrong place. It started from the place of the Ministry of Justice uh, having the most enormous financial squeeze of probably any uh, important department. Which, and they just leapt immediately from, we've got uh, insufficient money uh, to service courts to we're going to put them all online and on video. And so it doesn't work like that because, in fact, what you need to do is analyze how the courts work and how users work and then say, what's the best way that we could make this more efficient? And, in fact, I would shrink the court system. I would do much more preventative work, mediation work, all that kind of stuff. But they didn't go there. They just said... There are these court hearings. We've got to do it a different way. Um, and so they spent a huge amount of money before the pandemic and were experimenting with both um, fully video hearings, so that's a, a big Zoom call, with hybrid. Uh, so you've got people uh, in the court with others coming in on video and then actual online courts where the whole case is done through a computer program. So they were experimenting before all that, uh, before the pandemic. The pandemic hit, and and can I say that wasn't entirely successful, those experiments. So where, what what I think is interesting is, is it's so much about the user. So they took a blanket approach, almost whatever the user. What was evident before the pandemic is that professional users, you know, two professional users with, you know, people suing each other or having a dispute in a tribunal with legal representation, really not that much problem. It's when you get anybody 
who's, um, you know, in court, I don't like to use it, but an ordinary citizen, an ordinary person, most of whom have vulnerabilities, where things break down both on the computer program and on uh, the, the video hearings. So come the pandemic, and obviously, you know, court processes can't just be halted. Tribunals can't all be halted. And so I do take my hat off to them for, for, for finding ways around. But I think, to be honest, what the experiment has shown is that that 1.2 billion is, uh, in my view, possibly uh, been spent in the wrong place. Because what we've discovered is, yes, you can just about do it. And what they, you know, so all tribunals and family cases went fully online and criminal went hybrid and so on you can do it and they did technically do it but the question is what was the quality of justice and what uh experience did the users actually have and we've got quite a lot of evidence across some evidence not as much as we, we should have across the piece to say that one of the problems is technical so uh, there was a good report about um, tribunal hearings where one of the judges about mental health tribunals, which must be very stressful, where somebody might be sectioned or continue to be sectioned or whatever, only one in 19 hearings had no technical issues. So there's the, you know, it didn't work very well. Secondly, can you imagine the stress involved on ordinary users when there is, are technical problems it's bad enough when you're talking to a friend or whatever or your gp but in the middle of a court case that is not a great experience but the other issue um which i will illustrate by criminal justice is really something that we don't have enough research about which is where there's a power dynamic where somebody so so can i just say as well if you've been accused of a crime you are not a consumer you have not been given much choice about the, you know, the process. And therefore, the dynamics, the power dynamics, are, are very uneven. And what we don't know enough about is how does Zoom, how do video uh, relationships change how people view other people? We don't know. As we, we all know that on Zoom calls, it can be a bit awkward sometimes, particularly if it's somebody you don't know, where you're challenging something or whatever. In a court case, you've got somebody accused of a crime on which, you know, the stakes are incredibly high. And then you've got the judge generally in a courtroom surrounded by staff. And the defendant is normally in a, an, a, a place of imprisonment, either the police station or a prison. So it's not, they've got no choice about it, and they're already uh, detained. And what the evidence I saw with my own eyes, because I observed courts during the pandemic, but also what the evidence shows, is that the, the average defendant on video, and can I say we're talking much higher levels of social exclusion, uh, disability, um, lack of proficiency in English and a lot of uh, kind of behavioral issues as well. So what happens if 
one of two things, really, uh, in terms of behavior, it is they either disconnect from the process altogether. So they're on a video, they can't hear it very well. People don't seem to be paying attention to them. They're not in the room. They disconnect from their own court hearing, which you can't blame them for, but is not effective participation in their hearing. And obviously threatens whether they understand what's going on, whether they understand the outcome, and whether they get the right outcome. And then the other thing that happens, which I think is even sadder, is that because of the disconnect on video, they get frustrated. So all the evidence is that defendants on a video disconnected from the court um, can get quite angry, they can try and walk out, they can shout at the judge and so on. Now that does happen in the actual courtroom, but by being disconnected, they get frustrated. They can't you know, talk to their lawyer properly, they can't do any of these things. And then because they act angry, they then get more kind of negative responses, obviously, from the judges and others in the courtroom. So it has a, a kind of exponential negative effect. And the bit of evidence that there has been about um, actual research is, gives some really, really serious uh, indicators of what goes on. So it's not just this behavioral issue. There are indications from this research that those on video are more, are more likely to get an immediate prison sentence on their first appearance than those in the courtroom. And they're less likely to take up legal representation in the police station for that first hearing. And if you don't have legal representation, you're almost guaranteed to get a worse outcome. So on both those fronts, that is, that is about the real justice outcomes. So I think what it, what it raises is really serious questions about access to justice. Is, action, is access to justice about speed and convenience and what appears to somebody, what is sold to somebody as a more straightforward process? Or is it about effectively participating in your hearing and getting a justice outcome, whether it be criminal or any other, which would be equal to if you were there in person with everybody else there in person. And during the pandemic, I think it arose, you know, these questions have arisen. The government is in my mind in denial of the problems. It hasn't done the research so that we don't actually have the observational data. We don't, we've got these tiny indications from previously and we don't have, crucially, the justice outcomes data. Because can we honestly, as a country, continue with a process where there are indications that somebody gets a more punitive outcome through being on video? I think it's unacceptable and I just think we have to think much harder about justice, which is a very, very complex and high stakes process and technology. And it's uh, about the interrelationship between individuals and, um, uh, and, and, and uh, the importance of face-to-face -face contact there, I, I can see. I, I mean, the, 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 um, uh, I'd be interested in your, your take on where there are opportunities for technology. We were talking beforehand about listening, for example.
example, with yeah. cases in sort of the, 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 the back office uh, work, if you like. Um, where do you think yeah. technology can, can be used? There is massive opportunity for technology in, in justice. And can I say there were some hearings during the pandemic where, you know, they still need the outcome data, but where people uh, were vulnerable but seemed to uh, work well on a video hearing. So there are things called SEND tribunals, special educational needs tribunals for um, parents to, to advocate for their children to get a statement or to have that statement uh, respected or, or whatever. And those families said it actually worked quite well. Um, I think it's the back office stuff in injustice, which is absolutely the opportunity. So they are moving to kind of digital files and so on, but it's taken a long time and they could push much harder on that. So digital files, professionals working, professionals inputting, so administrative hearings where you it's where you get people who are not legally qualified, who are not professionals. Uh, everything else, absolutely, go for it. Cool. Thank you. Um, Elaine, uh, I, I went to quite a few uh, print events yesterday, and one of the themes that came out for me was cross-government and uh, the uh, difficulties of uh, getting the, sort of, all the machinery of the state to, um, uh, to, to line up together and clearly uh, in uh, uh, thinking about technology and Public sector, that's a, that's, that's a huge uh, challenge. Uh, uh, what, what do you think about how best to make links and learn from those sectors? I mean, defence in itself is a huge, uh, is a huge sector and uh, involves many different moving parts of, uh, of, of, of government. So, what do you think the, the, the risks and opportunities are there? Good morning, everybody, and well done for being up on the uh, early <laughs> shift today. And thank you to my fellow panelists because I'm really pleased to say that the, the sort of points that I thought I'd make this morning complement what we've heard. Um, and also to the Institute of Government for hosting this session for us today. Um, so I, when I was considering this question, I sort of stepped back a little bit and thought of three key points that I would like to make. And the first one is that technology is an enabler. It is not an end in itself. And we have heard that today. We've heard that from Steve. It's not just about applying the tech. It's got to be co-designed with this isn't something that you just pick off the shelf and put into the environment and it works. To be successful, you need to work with the people. And I think we heard from Penelope how that hasn't necessarily been the case when you're just trying to change an existing system rather than really considering what is it you want to change, not just applying a new system or overlaying it into that new system. Um, I've done a lot of work with UAVs, unmanned aerial vehicles, or what might be known to um, on the streets as drones. And if I had a penny for every time somebody said to me, I just want a drone. Well, what are you going to do with that drone? Well, I don't know, but I, I just want a drone. Because <laughs> guess what? It's exciting. You know, it looks like you're moving forward. But the reality is the drone in itself doesn't deliver the business benefits, the outcomes, the change that you want to or see. What the drone does is capture data. And then what you do with that data, how you integrate it back into your business is what makes and delivers that change. So technology for technology's sake is not the answer. My first point is about delivering outcomes. It's an enabler to delivering those outcomes. The second thing is to be successful in deciding what those outcomes are. 
there is something about a strong sense of purpose that we see across our public sector. They know what their job is. They know what it is that is good to achieve, what they are there to deliver in, the, in their service and what a good outcome looks like. And we shouldn't lose sight of that. And it feels a little bit like that might have been the case in some examples. What are those drivers for change? I liked the GP example because actually what they worked out, they know what their purpose is to deliver healthcare, but actually what they have used technology for is to improve that communication between patient and caregiver. And that was something not about the tech, it's about how we as humans interact together and receive those services. So my second point is public sector benefits from that strong sense of purpose with some very clear objectives. So the third, which I think ultimately is your question that you posed, which is how do you connect this cross-government, cross-industry, cross-department? How do you share that best practice and that knowledge to make sure that the lessons are learned? And I use the example of the ventilator challenge from last year that PA was fortunate enough to lead. We had a strong sense of purpose. What this thing called COVID, this existential at the time. We have to, we're living with this now, but when we think back to how we all were last March, we didn't know what life was going to be like. The need for these Nightingale hospitals and the ventilators which was acute, it was sharp. The sense of purpose in that ventilator team was there. How did they drive success in bringing and manufacturing so many different ventilators to be able to furnish these hospitals in such a short period of time? breaking all known expectations, years it takes to do that type of thing. How did they do that? They did it because all of the people needed to make the decision and the decision chain were in the room on day one. Your regulator, your users, your manufacturers, your designers, everybody in the room on day one allowed for what was unexpected to be achieved in such a short period of time, so that within 12 weeks, those ventilators were rolling off the production line and thankfully gave us as a society some level of assurance. It's a different form of technology from what we've, we've slipped a little bit into technology is just is, is how we interact electronically with each other, but there are other forms of technology and I just thought I would highlight that one. So I think just key, three key things, technology is just an enabler, but public services have such a strong sense of purpose and outcomes to deliver that actually we shouldn't lose sight of that. But to connect across government, it's about bringing people together. It's still about us. Technology can only take you so far. Thanks, Lynn. Um, can I have a drink? <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I, just, I just want a drink. Um, uh, it's really interesting. Thank you. I feel like I'm, quite, I'm conscious of time. I want to come to some uh, questions. So I'll, I'll, I'll open up a little bit um, uh, and as we're at the Labour Party conference, I think we've touched on this as we've gone through, but the sort of the relationship between the citizen and the state digital divide between uh, uh, different um, uh, communities and different uh, parts of the country. I actually come to you uh, first. What do you think the how, how do you think this is changing the relationship between the citizen and the state, and how do we avoid people getting left behind? Oh, that's a great question. I think that's actually the sort of key fundamental question in many ways. And Again, and just you know, to reiterate or to support what others have said about technology, 
know, it, 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 technology isn't something that happens to us. It is something that we shape. And unfortunately, I would say that the way it is shaping the relationship between the citizen and the state now is often a negative relation, negative way. I mean, the examples that Penelope gave, but also those who are excluded are not are being disempowered by this new this new digital relationship. If you can't be part of that, and I also think fundamentally that if the relationship between the state and the citizen is not one of accountability by the state to the citizen, but it becomes one of um, imposing a certain means of communication or certain requirements. And I think also actually I also say one of experimentation. I think um, the DWP was experimenting with open bank banking, for example, for claimants, which was where they were required to basically sign over all their privacy rights for their own finances in order to be able to receive their benefits successfully. So that, that again, it's a, it's, a, it's a power relationship where the power is in the hands of the state and the power should be in the hands of the citizen. So I think, uh, unfortunately, I think that then, so then that contributes to, uh, that, that disempowerment contributes to a sense of being left behind, which is dividing our country, um, which has been dividing our country, I'm sure that, no, over the last over the last few years, and it can entrench that. Or, you know, what we could do is have a much more inclusive and, um, you know, co-designed services where it is the citizen who's leading on how these services should work and where there's a kind of, sorry, technical, but a sort of federated system where people keep their own data close to them, but they can share it at their own choice. And that would empower citizens and that would put them in charge and then, you know, we would simply be responding to their needs. So technology is something that we can shape. And right now I am concerned that it's being shaped in a negative way to disempower, not everyone. I mean, people who've got the skills, etc., cetera, may feel much more empowered by it, but a particularly, you know, important demographic. Thank you. I, I, I was interested, uh, Elaine, come to you. Penelope talked a bit about um, uh, about evaluation uh, and how we know what's working and what isn't working in the context of your know, understanding divides. Um, uh, do you think there's, uh, what can government learn and what can the public sector learn about better evaluation of how all this is going? The unintended consequences of the action that we do. Um, and actually, it's there is a lot of metrics out there that can be tracked and can be considered in, in the example. It's really fascinating, the first case predictability on what the outcome is of that first case. That's the type of thing you have to be absolutely clear when you're doing any technology change programme, how it is you're going to measure the outcomes and the pathways to success, what do they look like? And, and what we're talking about is change and how we embrace change and how we consider whether that's a positive how that positive impact. So I think you just you've just got to be clear on what the outcome is and work backwards on how you're going to measure whether that's delivered and be aware of the unintended consequences. Yeah. Can I start to that's a really important point in terms of measuring what works and I, I also think it's something I just haven't really thought about it in this way, but technology tends to well, industrialize uh, impacts. And so when and clearly Penelope there were negative power relationships in the justice system. And the justice system, I mean I had this constituent MP, I know that, you know, for constituents who were who were, had you know low language skills or who you know, didn't have you know, the justice system wasn't designed for them anyway. But the thing about technology is it also can 
automate and industrialize that relationship. So it can automate and industrialize a good relationship, but it can also, in this case, automate and industrialize a negative relationship. And there we see it much become much more entrenched than that part of what's dangerous. Really interesting. I mean, Penelope, Steve, you're perhaps just that mm. sectors of expertise. I, I think that's absolutely right. And I, I mean, I think there is a, a profound, potentially negative effect about the relationship between the citizen and the state in relation to this push for technology and justice, which is a growing distrust of the justice system by those, uh, you know, ordinary people involved in it, particularly those accused of, of crime. Because, and there is a good evidence that, uh, and can I just say, I think minoritized communities are, are particularly ones who already distrust the justice system, so this can only increase it. And there's a direct correlation between um, lack of trust in the justice system and people committing crime. I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? If you don't trust the system, you you also think that, uh, you you know, you might not you might as well commit crime but there's that correlation so i think i think we've got hugely important effects from this Steve, I, I think there's a i think the idea that we should we should really measure outcomes and that's one of the things we should we should do right is very very important that's the only way you really know whether a technology has done a good job and there's a very significant failure in this area in a whole bunch of different areas of government so, for example, we have, during the pandemic, we tried to get a lot more GPs online because we don't want patients mixing in the waiting room and giving each other COVID. So there's a huge expansion of the GPs who've got online systems. We've got about 20 different systems at least. What we haven't got is a really good way to test which of those systems works. <laughs> so we, we're not, we're collecting some data but not publishing it, or the NHS is collecting a lot of data and not publishing it. But the people in the NHS are actually paying for these systems have got virtually no information about the relative performance of those different tools. And they're going to roll over these procurements next year without including that in the criteria for who should we, which tools should we buy next year. Mm. And that, that's a terrible failure. In fact, there's another thing which was also in the news last week, where the inability to measure stuff makes a huge difference to the efficiency of spending. It was that the NHS spends about 20 billion a year on drugs. Some of that by hospitals, some of that by GPs. The GP-controlled prescribing budget has been steady. Literally, it has not gone outside a very narrow bound for about 10 or 15 years. We have incredibly detailed data. We know exactly what everyone is doing. And it's a budget, one of the few budgets in the whole NHS which is under tight control. The hospital prescribing budget is growing to 20% a year. It's totally out of control. It's not much bigger than the, the, the GP prescribing budget. And the fundamental reason is we have no evaluation, we have no data on what is going on in the hospitals, and no ability to check whether or not it's the right thing. Fascinating. Familiar story. I'm going to come to questions now. Uh, and wow. um, uh, Excellent. I will take uh, three at a time, I think, and I'll go for the uh, woman in the middle there. Penny, that's next to us. Thank you so much, and thanks to the panellists for a really um, interesting discussion. I'm Dr. Matthew Byron, Director of Research at the Leeds Education Foundation, who's worked quite closely with Penelope on um, some of the issues around the digitisation of the court system. I wanted to ask, um, I, 
Chi, you are absolutely right to highlight the privacy risks um, that face people in their interactions with the state. But one of the big challenges to the work um, that um, we've tried to do in terms of demonstrating outcomes or understanding how these technology forms has been that the dominant way of thinking about risk is all in terms of privacy. So, practical example, when we first approached the court service about the need to monitor the impact of digitisation on people from different groups, the response that we got was, well, um, we can't measure demographics because that's an intrusion into people's privacy. We can't ask questions about protected characteristics because it will be very concerning for privacy. And I wonder, how do we move beyond that framing of um, government data versus privacy to thinking about how we ameliorate the range of harms that are caused when you know technology doesn't perform well for people? Really important point. Thank you. Uh, next question. Uh, gentleman at the front here and then the Thank you very much. Um, I'm Paul Luzzi. I'm from Southampton, which is CLP. Um, I was a social worker for many years, I became a councillor after I retired the first time. Um, and uh, I was a cabinet member and I was very involved in mental health promotion. Um, I retired and became a PhD student looking at visual devices um, for social contact by older people with dementia. So this is really very dear to my heart. Um, I'm also involved with a thing called So Let's Connect, which is a Southampton voluntary organisation that sets out to provide kit to people who are digitally disenfranchised. Um, so they've got something like a laptop to use, they've got an internet connection at least for a period of time, they do other indefinitely, and they have support to make use of the kit and the internet connection. We want to improve social contact, that arose during um, the lockdown course, that was a big motivator for it, but it also enables the provision of all sorts of things, so connection with um, GPs, with other health professionals, um, with public services in general, um, with online retail, the online banking, with sources of information, all of those sorts of things. For me, the biggest thing which really supports health is social contact with people that they know already, um, the ability to make new friends, the ability to keep in touch with family across the world, tremendously important. Um, but I think there are two things which um, make me think we have something we need to address. One is, I'm seeing a particular lack of policy and, and around my particular area in relation to prevention and digital use. I'm not sure if that's included in the government policy at the moment. And in terms of funding, um, we desperately need to be able to help people who are poorer, to help people who have to spend their money on other things, particularly at the moment with universal credit under threat. And I wonder what Sir uh, Chief, particularly with a panel, generally think about what we should do about those two things. Great. Yeah, can you just, what was the, what was the first? Uh, the first was, um, we have, a, I think, a policy gap um, in some areas of um, what we should do to um, promote the interests of people, uh, particularly for me with dementia, but generally people are digitally disenfranchised, promoting stuff mm -hmm. and giving a bit of cash to things like the Good Things Foundation is very good and enabling it to happen is very good, um, but it's only part of the story. Thank you. And the woman behind to your left. Thank you. I'm Jen Person, I'm Director of Defend Digital Me. We're a children's digital rights and privacy campaign organisation. And I would uh, fully back uh, Dr Byron's comments um, because I think actually privacy is one of the arguments that is misused by this government when it suits them to uh, avoid accountability and um, 
uh, access to information in the way used, used properly and is uh, then abused when they, for example, distribute data to third-party companies for commercial reuse and so on. But my question is, um, we're a non-partisan organisation, so how do you think Labour can differentiate its digital approach from the current government? And I would like to see a sort of vision of where and why it's different. You know, does it include tackling fundamental issues like underfunding uh, being used, sort of, you know, in uh, being avoided in the debate around digital when we're actually talking about lack of provision of perhaps GP retention, GP availability, um, or as uh, Penelope has spoken about in the justice system, lack of legal aid, lack of provision of services, and is the technological debate currently really in government misused as an excuse for avoiding questions around underfunding of provision of public services? Thank you very much. Three great questions. I'm going to try and get at least one more round of questions in uh, after that. So we'll, keep, we'll try and keep answers uh, answers short. But yes, uh, most of those were corrected at you, uh, G. So we, uh, uh, we'll, we'll start with you. The privacy risk, have we, um, uh, have we got that right? Are we using it? It's, uh, it, is a, it is a reason not to do things that we should be doing. Um, uh, that's the point about um, the policy gap, particularly for certain uh, groups, and then Labour's differentiation. Uh, so, well, I, I'm going to try and I'm going to try and answer because they're great questions, um, and I could speak for a long time. So I'm going to try to answer them sort of in one, in as much as the differentiation of Labour's approach to digital. And I should have actually highlighted this as one of the many criticisms of Francis Maud. You know, um, is that um, digital is not a way to uh, cut costs. You know, digital is a way to um, reset or re-empower the uh, relationship between people in the state in an enabling way. And I think that, you know, because whatever, the, if you like, whatever the, the challenge in democracy in our state and our public service have many challenges, technology is not the answer on its own. I think you're absolutely right. Technology is only the answer as part of an overall, of a vision of to where we want to uh, head to. And so digital, and I think Elaine said that digital as an enabler for people, for citizens, not as a route to cutting costs and enforcing a relationship between the state and the individual, whether it's around benefits or whether it's around uh, health care. Um, yeah, this government, I mean, you know, sorry, you know, GDPR or privacy is not the reason why you can't understand how the state is failing certain demographics. And we saw this absolutely with COVID. And I was just, I, you know, I was really kind of incensed sometimes in the chamber, which actually does happen quite often. You know, for example, when the government, the government, the, uh, Hancock said that we couldn't share data on COVID infection rates with local authorities because there, were, there was a privacy and data sharing issues. That was just such crap. You know, there already were there already were ways. Of course, when, when there's a when there's a you know a pandemic and when the, you know the, there's already a public interest exception, but there already were ways of, of sharing that data. That was because they were incompetent and they didn't you know they didn't want to, and also they wanted to pay their friends and uh, certain. Um, Consultancies, obviously not PA. Um, lots of money to solve. <laughs> lots of money to solve the problem for them. So um, I think it's only you know that GDPR and privacy is used as an excuse. And now in COVID, now when we are tracking, for example, rates of vaccination amongst uh, black and minority ethnic groups, and we're doing you know we're doing that and we're asking that question. People don't want to ask that question. Answer it. They cannot answer it, but we are asking it. And I don't. I, you know, I don't think that's not certainly not what's offending people about the vaccine rollout. So, so I. I so I, I. I think it absolutely have to put in place ways of, of measuring. 
But I don't think, and I think your question may have been implying this, I don't think you can force people to share their private data on the basis of the common good. I think you need to make sure that people have the ability to share that. And, you know, and, and, you need, and you know, technology can do so much. And again, you know, technology can do so much to track people's opinions of you know, what shoes they want to buy. And yet, apparently, we can't have decent technology to track people's opinions of what privacy they want to establish you know, for themselves. So I think, there's, I think there's a whole opportunity there in sort of reg tech, reg, regulatory technology to ensure that people's privacy, privacy choices can be better informed and better shared. But I do think people people have a right to. I think also, and I'll, say, I'll, and I'll stop there. Because I'll go. People will be more likely to share their data if they feel confident and they feel that they're in control of it. And that is a repeated mistake that this government has made when it comes to health data, for example. And just finally, sort of on how do you give disenfranchised groups like or people, you know, with dementia, how do you put them at the centre? Well, for a start, you need to have a strategy, a data strategy or a, a digital strategy which recognises that. And as I say, we do not have a digital inclusion strategy. So we don't recognise those who are dis disenfranchised or uh, excluded. And the Good Things Foundation does you know, great work. But there needs to be a recognition that you know, democracy in our democracy loses its legitimacy if it becomes a digital democracy with significant people digitally excluded. And um, you know those with dementia and other groups are absolutely what part of that. Thanks, uh, Chief. Um, Steve, briefly on the privacy uh, debate, it'll take on. Uh, so I think well, there are several things where the government, this government, has done something very badly wrong. So, for example, there was the campaign to try and collect all of the basic medical records held by GPs in a central place, which actually could be an incredibly useful thing because it would enable the NHS to work out whether it's doing good things or bad things and that would be a source for improvement. But the government, I think the technical term probably they have this, but they, they screwed the pooch because they, um, they completely, they completely uh, messed up the whole, the whole idea by talking about the value, the commercial value of the data that we collecting. It's not, it, I mean, it's not like it haven't made that mistake before. That's what brought down care.data. And so they, instead of the public getting something which they probably expect the NHS already does, which is that you know, your ambulance driver has your GP record so they know not to give you penicillin or something like that, we've now got the public incredibly resistant yeah. to sharing data, which yeah. would really help the NHS if they did it. All because mm -hmm. instead of looking at data and careful controls around privacy for the benefit of health system, the government said we want to sell the data. Total error. Yeah. A successive unparliamentary language, I'm loving it. <laughs> um, uh, do one really quick round uh, of final questions, but uh, and we'll go to two gentlemen front there and then the uh, woman, uh, as you've already come in, I'll come back to you a bit. Mm -hmm. um, hi. Is it quite cool? Yes. Um, so, I'm Tom McGrath from Goodman Foundation. Oh. <laughs> um, so um, I have a million questions, as you can imagine, from digital inclusion charity. Um, but I'm going to focus on uh, affordability of services and affordability of getting online. So obviously, I'm worried about the impact of the universal credit cards um, and how many people have to discard their mobile data or broadband to be able to afford food, heating, all these other things, especially heating right now. Um, 
and basically, do we need to look at the, the affordability of these things? What do the government need to do to make sure that uh, people aren't cut off from accessing health, accessing justice, accessing job applications? That would be the need to this. Sorry, that was a bit of a wobbly mm-hmm. question. But That's mm-hmm. great. Thank you. And much for yeah, Ant Reid from a Delegate from Stone, CLP. My question's about fail fast, and it might actually be a question, Alex, for you. How can we get the public sector to do what the digital private sector does very well? We talk about experimentation, risk-taking, we talk about uh, measurement, we talk about whether it works or not, and purpose. In the digital world, if a project's not working very well, we evaluate it quickly, we shut it down, we let it go. How can we get the public sector to admit to a bad idea early enough that it shuts it down and doesn't get these entrenched problems uh, and uh, the GP thing's part of that, isn't it? Yeah. 20 things, we don't know what works. We know some of it doesn't. Let it go. Questions to me weren't part of the deal. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll do my best, though. And then finally, the... Uh... I, w- I would say also 1.2 billion, just, you know, yeah. with no, fail, no plan to fail fast or allow them to fail fast. Yeah. <laughs> and and using a lot of money in the process. Yeah. Uh, hello, I'm uh, Jack Pesci. I'm a councillor in Lewisham and I'm chairing a group looking at digital inclusion for people with learning disabilities. And we're right at the beginning of the process, but one thing we've come upon uh, quite quickly and quite early is what we've got we're seeing is attitudinal exclusion where um, people are seen by, for example, support workers. Why do I need to help this person get online? All they want to do is chat to their mate down the road. So we're not going to bother um, with that. That sort of exclusion by the, the people that, that work in the field. But also um, the attitude that where something doesn't work for somebody, it will provide an alternative. And though providing alternatives is important, People are not saying, we need to adjust this. This isn't usable by everybody, so let's see if we can adjust it to make it more usable by more people. We say, okay, you can't do it online, make a phone call. No, we're going to try and adjust this, and you too can do this online. Um, (laughs) And and it's this attitudinal thing that we're coming across quite early in the process. And I wonder what we can do to try and change that saying that for people's well-being it's really important that they can talk to their mates so let's get them support so they can do that and if this thing takes 18 steps to get through let's make it nine steps and see if a few more people are able to use it um, and i also want to say uh, at my doctors uh, you now phone up and you're offered a telephone uh, call in a week rather than a face-to-face call <laughs> <laughs> thank you really um, uh, main point there, really uh, interesting. I'm going to ask Delphine uh, Elaine to come in as you have, and I'll, I'll briefly try and uh, do my bit, uh, and then any, any very final uh, comments, but, but uh, then we'll just wrap up, because Penny will uh, tell me off. I, I just want to say, on, on privacy, I just think H- the court services, but you know, talking baloney, because if you're um, stopped and searched, they take racial data. If you're in the police custody, they take racial data. Either you know self-declared or, or they, you know, say it them say it themselves. So the justice system already does it. I would say the, the point about people being ex, 
excluded from online justice. I think, you know, actually what the government's doing is pressurizing people to do it online in a way which is not necessarily to their benefit. So it's an ironic kind of overturning of the normal situation here. And actually the people who have to go, and they always offer an alternative. So, I, you know, to, to be fair, if somebody says, I, I can't do online for a court hearing, that they will find a place where they can do it or, or they can go into the physical building. But I would say, you know, the, the people who are excluded, if they actually do go into a physical building, may actually be an advantage, though they don't know it. Um, Elaine, any thoughts on those, uh, those um, comments? The user experience is a really interesting mm. one that we heard from the lady at the back there and, and how not all demographics are being considered in that user experience. Tom, I imagine this is something that you might <laughs> campaign for, that the minority groups are considered within it. Um, and um, there's nothing more than that, that lack of consideration in how they're developing this technology. It's really wonderful to hear mm. all of your concerns and the work that you're doing in trying to make it accessible for a broader range of people and and that's it's just a shame that it is that sector that's having to you know to do this and to pioneer it and push it through um fail fast it takes so much work to get a business case written and approved to get the investment to do it i'm not sure i'd want to fail fast if i'd put that much effort to do it i just it has to be that way it should be that way um and, and I'm not sure culturally why that isn't an acceptable position to be in. And just to pick up on, on that point, I, mean, I think I, I agree on the sort of sunk costs uh, uh, point. I think when you, if you have a 1.2 billion program, you get, you get on the track and, and, um, uh, and it is quite hard uh, given the uh, sort of understandable in and of themselves uh, um, uh, points around accountability, around the way that um, year-end spend works and flexibilities or not over that. The culture and nature of the treasury, um, uh, and uh, the incentives that, that that puts on civil servants, um, uh, quite rightly, parliamentary accountability, but the, the risk aversion that that, that that comes along with that, and the nature of any big bureaucracy uh, uh, it, it is that it tends to sort of work out what it thinks and then stick on the rails and uh, and, and, and carry on. I think it's a it's easy to say it's a cultural uh, change that's needed. I think that's right. But what is a cultural change other than sort of a thousand incremental, very specific? Uh, mm -hmm. Changes that you make. This comes back to the broader kind of civil service public sector reform uh, debate, which um, you know, that's one of the areas that I think we need to think about in that uh, in that um, uh, sphere. But it's not there's not a sort of magic thing that you can just say do this or do that. It's a, it's it's incremental and many different um, uh, interventions that change the culture that mean that civil service and ministers feel supported that they can take risks and then abandon uh, cherished pro projects when uh, uh, when they're not working on the evaluation point uh, that we were talking about earlier. Well, no, she, do, do you want to have the, the sort of final word? Or anything? <laughs> oh well, thank you very much for that. So I, I, I do want. I, I'm sorry that, um, that it's finishing. It's been a fascinating de debate. I, I do want to. Well, I just want to say two things briefly. I think to your point, whilst I, I agree, uh, we need civil service reform. I agree, we need cultural reform as well. But I think we have to recognise that the public and the private sectors are different, and they are different for some very good reasons. One of which, you know, is that failing fast when what you're failing means that you're 
beta uh, of uh, a new iteration of Google search won't be out in time is one thing. Failing when it means that people are going to be left without universal credit is another. And I have to tell you, and it comes to this attitudinal point, when I've sat in constituency surgeries, and I'm speaking again as an engineer who believes that technology transforms the world for the better, but I've had, a, a, I remember a mother in such tears because she had to go to a food bank to get food to feed her children who were hungry because she could not compute the universal credit application online. And, and, it, and, it, and technology was not only disempowering her, it was making her feel a failure and making her feel a bad mother. Now, you know, that was, so, so, so I mean, I, you know, I, 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 that is one of the, re you know, you have to recognize that the, that the, they're not consumers in the public sector. You don't have a choice at which government. You don't have a choice. You do have a choice, vote Labour. Um, <laughs> but generally, you don't have a choice about where your government is. And that, that's not to be making an excuse for bureaucracy and for not having um, uh, agile working practices. The other issue is, of course, funding and resources, because the kind of people who have the skills to make that transformation cultural transformation in the public sector are too often being attracted into the private sector. And that was what the great thing about government digital services when it started was that it inspired people to come into the public sector and make a real difference there. And that is what, you know, that's what we need. Come work in the public sector and make change for good. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you very much for that, Vivian. Great.